0: Well, welcome everyone. If you have your Bible with you, would you take it, please? And let's go over to Psalm chapter 10. Psalm chapter 10 is what we're interested in, and we'll be focusing in on verses 12 through 18. But in order to set the setting of this, I'm going to read the entire Psalm just by way of remembrance, and since it's been a little while since we were in Psalm 10. Let's take a look at verse 1, Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand far off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? In his lofty pride, the wicked hotly pursues the afflicted. Let them be caught in the thoughts in which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his soul's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns Yahweh." The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at times. Your judgments are on high, out of sight. As for all adversaries, he snorts at them. He says in his heart, I will not be shaken from generation to generation. I will not be in adversity His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the places of the villages where one lies in wait in hiding places. He kills the innocent. He eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lies in wait in the hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lies in wait to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches and he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Yahweh, O God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said in his heart, you will not require it. You have seen it for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his hand. O Yahweh. You have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will cause your ear to give heed, to give justice to the orphan and to the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. In the last message that we had on Psalm chapter 10, we said that oppression is the arbitrary, unjust, and cruel exercise of power if you're a Christian man or a woman, you will suffer oppression in this world in one form or another. Some will suffer more than others. Some will be able to endure cruelty more than others due to health or age or strength or mental acuity or whatever the case may be. However, as you will see in this particular text that we are focused in on, which is Psalm 10 verses 12 through 18... Our Lord has a very special focus on those who are weak and those who are vulnerable. He is a chief shepherd who's willing to leave the 99 and go after that one lost lamb, Luke 15. That's the picture of helplessness, vulnerability. Psalm 9 and 10 are God's gifts to those who are exposed to mistreatment and attack, the defenseless, the helpless, the powerless, the unguarded, the unprotected, the weak. Now, why are these psalms God's gifts? Because they teach us God's grace that results in courage, boldness, fearlessness, when you and I are the most vulnerable and experiencing oppression. Now, if you'll take a look back at chapter 9, you'll discover that there is a subscript given, and we said that chapter 9 and chapter 10 are essentially one psalm because it is the continuation of a Hebrew alphabet in this song as an acrostic And in fact, there is no subscript in chapter 10, and that's deliberate. There's only just a chapter division there, and we said that the chapter divisions are not inspired. So there is a sense in which Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are actually one psalm. It's a continuation of the same theme. And if you look at the subscript underneath the title of Psalm 9, you'll find that it says for the choir director, Almuth Laban, Laban, a psalm of David. Now, it means in the Hebrew, set to the death of a son. Or in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it's uh, translated as set to the secrets of a son. Now, when you take a look at David's life and all the things that we know that occurred during David's life, the most likely scenario that this psalm is set in is when Absalom, his own son, pursues his father in order to, in a sense, kill him and actually take over the kingship of Israel. That's probably the best scenario. Absalom's pursuit of his own father, David, to kill him and assume that kingship occurs in 2 Samuel chapter 16 all the way through chapter 19. What Absalom did not know was that, and I mentioned this in our last message, that David was immortal if Yahweh wanted him to be king. David was immortal. And the same thing's true with you, and the same thing's true with me. We're immortal until God wants to take us home. Lord cannot touch us. The Lord does touch us, but our enemies cannot touch us. I got to make that right. The Lord is the one who actually surrounds us and protects us and provides for us. However, the agony that David had, having one of your own family members revolt against you and actually desire to kill you, must have caused him as a father intense anxiety and grief. You remember, as I talked about earlier, that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 belong together because of the sequence of verses that roughly follow the Hebrew alphabet. So, Psalm 9 and 10 describe a time in David's life when his life was not only threatened, but quite possibly he was being hunted down by his own family member, his own son, One of the most difficult and painful aspects of abuse is a betrayal of trust by someone that you once trusted, that was a part of your family. So David's oppression was not only real, but it was also very intimate. As David describes his experience of the awful mistreatment, you can see his highs and his lows of trusting the goodness and the providence of Yahweh throughout Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. So what have we learned so far in relationship to this? Let's do a quick overview of what we've seen so far. In the first message, we took a look at Psalm chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. And we talked about in verses 1 and 2, the fact that during times of oppression, this is a time of worship. This is a time of worship. Now, this is really critical. You must talk to yourself during awful hardship as an effective reminder to remain mentally resilient in your worship of the Lord. Mentally resilient in your worship of the Lord. Why is that so significant? Because our great tendency is to become negative, pessimistic, withdrawn, and depressed during times of great oppression. There's a second thing we talked about in verses 3 through 6, that David rehearses the fact that the Lord will display his wrath on those who are his enemies. And you have to do the same thing. You have to remind yourself that the Lord will display his wrath on those who seek seek to afflict you and oppress you. And then we said in verses 7 through 10 that God goes as far as destroying the wicked. His enemies are very temporal, and He will bring a terrifying judgment on them in the process. He will deliver His people, and so you must rehearse the trustworthiness of the Lord, because He will not forsake you during your time of oppression and opposition. Then we said in the second message in Psalm 9, verses 11 through 20, that in verses 11 and 12, God declares His wonders. He, Yahweh will not forget the cry of the afflicted. In fact, He will demand punishment for bloodthirsty oppressors. And those who trust in Yahweh know that He is a God of wonders. So in this particular case, you must remember to continue to give the Lord your praise and worship during your oppression because of His wonders. In addition, we find out that God Himself, in chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, delivers the weary. He delivers the weary. That Yahweh will have compassion and eventually remove the affliction. He not only tells us He will judge the oppressors, but He tells us how He will judge His oppressors. And this is what we talked about in relationship to Talianic justice. Talianic justice. He will cause the evil that they design In order to trap you to fall back upon their own heads. That's Talianic justice. He will cause the evil that they intend you to fall back upon their own head. In other words, they will fall into their own traps. There's the idea. That's the way God has designed Talianic justice. So you gotta trust the Lord in his vengeful. Judgment, causing your enemies to fall, in a sense, into their own traps. And then in verses 17 through 20 was the destiny of the wicked. David's difficulties is that Yahweh will bring oppressors to an end by putting them in their graves. Now, this will strike fear among the nations when they realize their own frailty and helplessness before Yahweh and so, in this sense, you must settle your anxious thoughts by acknowledging the finality and frailty of your oppressor before your Lord. They are frail, and they are uh, there is a finality to their life. And then we can't. In message number three, we came to Psalm ten, verses one through eleven, and here we found out about disquieting worry that David experienced in his own life. And sometimes this happens even to you and I during times of significant hardship. Yahweh can seem distant. The reality is that He's really not distant, but your thoughts become so flooded with the awful fear that your Lord somehow has abandoned you in the difficulties that you're facing. And you must understand at this particular point that during times of oppression, the Lord may seem distant and unresponsive. And then David describes the wicked. He describes the oppressors and their dismissive ways. Uh, They may seem carefree. And extremely controlling. But that's, he says, only an illusion. They believe that they're invincible. So, you must know that for a time the wicked may seem to prosper and actually be protected. There will be times like that in your own life. Make no mistake about it. This is where the Bible gets really real. There are going to be times where it seems evil's winning. Wickedness is prevailing. I can't stand up under this during this time. And David went through identical times like this. Furthermore, not only that, but in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 10, there were some very disturbing works. And during this particular time, The seemingly invincible oppressor will feed your hopelessness with deception and thoughts that God has truly abandoned you. So the wicked here will traffic in deception and seem to function with impunity. They will traffic in deception. That brings us to the latter part of chapter 10 or verse 12. And this becomes significant because now, David, there is a significant change of tone in this psalm. In this final message of this four-part series on Psalm 9 and 10, we have three remaining points of emphasis concerning David's trust in Yahweh and his belief that Yahweh will not abandon his people when they are oppressed. Throughout these two Psalms, the problem is not that our Lord abandons us in our affliction, but that we abandon him in our thinking during our affliction. That's such a big thing. He does not abandon us. We abandon him in our thinking. So when this happens to you, God has not failed you. You have failed him. God is the one who is at work determining well-being. As you read Psalm 10, you'll notice, and we read this from the Legacy Standard Bible right at the beginning, a profound change of tone in the psalm from verse 11 to verse 12. The first 11 verses of Psalm 10 describe the cries. Of David as he feels abandoned by Yahweh. And you have to understand that David is describing his experience and his feelings in those first 11 verses, not reality. He's describing his experiences and his feelings, not reality. The change in this psalm goes from awful despondency to active demands. Verse 12 is David's overriding, in a sense, his feelings of abandonment with faith-inspired cry for Yahweh to arise, O God, lift up your hand. And even though his emotions are overwhelmingly telling him that God has forgotten you, David knows that's not true. Truth always trumps tingles. knowledgeable faith always overrides negative emotions. When you're able to mindfully focus on the truth of your Lord's compassionate nature, then you will have the same four experiences that David has in verses 12 through 15. And the first one is seen in verse 12, where very boldly, this is a prayer for the Lord's deliverance. It's very strong. Now, what does it take for a doubt-filled man like David in verse 1 to suddenly become a courageous man of confident prayer in verse 12? And the simple answer is believing the truth about the faithfulness, goodness, omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience of Yahweh. Look at verse 4 again. The thoughts of the wicked are filled with constant, pulsing, reoccurring thoughts. There is no God. David's thoughts are filled with not only is there a God now, but He is a compassionate, caring, and good with His children. David's thoughts are deliberately filled with the marvelous loving kindness of Yahweh. Psalm chapter seventeen and verse seven: "Marvelously show your loving kindness, your chesed, O Savior of those who take refuge." At your right hand from those who rise up against them. Now, this is the difference between the pessimistic person who allows intrusive doubts about God to fill his thinking and the person who deliberately reminds himself of the character of God every day. When David calls upon Yahweh to arise here, It is his poetic way of calling upon him to act now. It's a bold statement that is full of assurance that Yahweh will act against the wicked and their oppression. Now, this is an ironic contrast to the first 11 verses of chapter 10. So far, Yahweh has been inactive and seems to be indifferent to David's suffering, but David knows that that is not who Yahweh is. He calls upon Yahweh to lift up his hand in order to bring down judgment upon the wicked. Remember in verse 11, the wicked believe God has forgotten the afflicted. David refuses to believe this to be true and calls upon God to remember and to act on behalf of those who are afflicted. Now, I think it's very easy to view verse 12 as somehow wishful but doubtful plea by David if you think about it like that, then you've missed the whole tone change of this particular chapter. You have it all wrong. It is a confident statement that Yahweh will act, and David is confident that he will act. In fact, in the Hebrew language, we can see this much clearly, much more clearly than you can in the English. This is what we call a cow voice with an imperative, which means David is very confident about what he is saying. He's very confident about how he is expressing the fact that God will act on his behalf. This is significant. So this is a confidence-filled statement by David. He has no doubts about Yahweh's trustworthiness in this verse. So if that's the case, then what inspires David's bold confidence? David's confidence is inspired by the very character of Yahweh. That is verse 13. Why has the wicked spurned God, he asks. He has said in his heart, you will not require it. Now follow the thoughts here. David has already observed in verse 4 that the thoughts of the wicked constantly pulse with the idea there is no God. And then in verse 8, other wicked men will say, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So verse 4 is the wishful denier, denial of a wicked atheist, while verse 8 is the wishful denial of a wicked deist. The atheist tries to maintain there is no God, and the deist tries to maintain that there, if there is a God, he is so disconnected from life that, that he has nothing to do with us now. The atheist believes God is spurious. The deist believes that God is a spectator. And David rejects both the atheist and the deist. David is the opposite of the atheist and the deist. God is both actively subsistent and supportive. And this is why, in verse 13... David, who is a committed theist and also understands the compassion of Yahweh for his people, openly asks the incredulous question, why has the wicked spurned God? Now, the tone of that question is dripping with disbelief. Why should that question go unanswered? Why should the wicked be allowed to go on thinking that God will not act to provide for his people. The Lord's honor is at stake here. Why should the insolence of wicked abusers be allowed to continue? That's a good question. So the problem of the Lord's honor in verse 13 is at stake. One commentator said this, When God rescues his people, he will also rescue his reputation. When he rescues his people, he will also rescue his reputation. The wicked will often mock the active compassion and deliverance of God because his heart is full of unbelief. Notice again in verse 11, he says in his heart. Then again in verse 13, he has said in his heart you will not require it. The His heart and his mind naturally deny the caring compassion of God to deliver his people and to wreak justice and vengeance upon those who are trying to deliver oppression, affliction, and wickedness upon the people of God. David's heart does not deny it. He embraces who God is. So this gives David endurance an encouragement to persevere through death-threatening opposition. So when you are languishing under affliction, you need to ask yourself, listen, how is my heart denying God? How is my heart denying God? How am I thinking and acting like an atheist or a deist? Whatever unbelief fills your heart is the very barrier to your confidence that you have in the Lord, whatever is ruling there. Now look at verse 14. David now explains his confidence in Yahweh by affirming his deliverance. Yahweh alone determines well-being. Verse 14 says it like this. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you, you have been the helper of the orphan. This brings us to the protection of Yahweh that David talks about, is very sure. David refutes the denials of the atheist and the deist by asserting God's faithfulness. Both the atheist and the deist believe that God doesn't even know what is going on. The atheist denies God's very... existence. The deist denies God's personal involvement, and David says that not only is God aware of what is happening, but he is about to act in his deliverance. The wicked actually believe that God does not observe their wicked deeds. He believes that he will not be held accountable for his evil actions. David denies such delusion. Yahweh really has not missed anything. Yahweh looks from heaven. Psalm 33 and verse 13 says, he sees all the sons of men. Psalm 14 and verse 2, Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who has insight, anyone who seeks after God. Psalm 11 and verse 4, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord doesn't miss anything. He sees the evil works of the wicked, and he sees the suffering of the righteous. Now, notice how verse 14 politely translates the term describing the oppressed and uses the term unfortunate. The unfortunate commits himself to you. That doesn't mean that they're unfortunate when they commit themselves to Yahweh. It's describing their condition in their affliction. That's what it's describing. And I think the word unfortunate is sort of a poor word to translate this term. It actually is a description of an unhappy person. The unhappy, the unhappy is the one that commits himself to you. That's what is supposed to happen. Your Lord sees your unhappiness. It it refers to a hapless person who suffers from adverse circumstances, seems to be helpless and at the mercy of those circumstances. He not only sees your awful circumstances, but he also acknowledges and notices And sees your awful mood. You're unhappy. Well, in the final words of verse 14, David goes further to note that Yahweh also has been the helper of the most vulnerable. This is the person who has no resources and no family, the orphan who has no parents to provide and protect. He is their helper. Now that word is a very rich word. He is their helper. A word that refers to God doing for people what they cannot do for themselves. You ever reach that point? I've done everything. I can't do anything more. You reach the end of your own abilities. You're actually in great place from God's perspective. I can't do anything more. I have to just wait upon the Lord at this particular point. So that's, that's the orphan. When they are powerless, he is their protector. Psalm 46 and verse 1 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Now I know that we quote that verse all the time, but the total reality of that is very real. It's very real. He is our refuge. Alcohol is not going to be our refuge. Antidepressants is not going to be our refuge. God is our refuge. He's the one who is our strength. He's the one that we turn to, a very present help during time of trouble. So God is not finished refuting the atheist, or David is not uh, finished either refuting the atheist and the deist, where the picture of Yahweh in verse 14 is one of tenderness, the picture of Yahweh in verse 15 is one of toughness. And here's where David talks about the purging of the Lord being so successful. In verse 15, where it says, Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Now, back in chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, David had acknowledged that he knows that Yahweh will destroy the wicked. Now, here in chapter 10 and verse 15, David's prayer expresses his belief that God's judgment on the wicked uh, needs to be, it needs to happen with some very bold imagery. He wants Yahweh to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Now, it is poetic imagery that is calling upon Yahweh to render in a sense, the wicked and the evil doer powerless, hence break their arms. When their power is removed, they can no longer attack. The sons of Korah in Psalm 44 and verse 3 uses the same imagery when speaking of how the Israelites conquered the promised land. It says, for by their own sword, they did not possess the land and their own arm did not save them but your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. In other words, they were powerless by themselves to make the conquest of the land, but God enabled them so that when wickedness and evildoers who bring oppression, when their arms are broken, they will be powerless to do their evil. Now look at the second line of verse 15. When David prays for Yahweh to seek out his wickedness until you find none, he's calling upon the Lord to wipe out oppression completely. To seek out means to avenge and to call to account all those who practice oppression and totally remove all of them. Bring your judgment and remove all the filth is basically what David is saying. And that parallels the other imprecatory psalms when we go through the book of psalms the imprecatory psalms are they'll they'll shake you they're they're difficult Psalm, in addition to psalm 10 which is a, an imprecatory psalm there is psalm 5 psalm 17 35 58 59 69 70 79 83 109 129 137 and 140 14 imprecatory psalms throughout the book of Psalms. Why? Psalms imprecate. In other words, it involves judgment, calamity, or curses upon the enemies of righteousness. Psalm 37 and verse 17 says, for the arms of the wicked will be broken, but Yahweh sustains the righteous. Now, this may be a little bit unsettling, especially for New Testament believer. However, if you remember back when we studied through the book of Revelation, spent five years, over 65 messages, going through the book of Revelation, you remember that, every time you pray for the Lord to return quickly, you're calling upon the Lord to come and rain horrible judgment down on this wicked world and to remove evil completely. There is a sense in which your prayer is an imprecatory prayer. Dear Lord, come back quickly, because when He comes, He will come in vengeance and judgment. That will happen. And this is exactly what David is doing, and he knows that this is in complete alignment with God's sovereign will and His plan, and we saw that back in chapter 9. If you have an opportunity, you can... Go over and read this in the New Testament where Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. So our Lord's second coming will bring judgment upon all the wickedness of the earth, and after such a judgment, no wickedness, oppression, affliction, or cruelty will be found on the earth. Seek out his wickedness until you find none, David says. Now, what right does Yahweh have in destroying the wicked in this world? Well, the answer to that question is clearly stated in verse 16, which brings us to delivering the weak in verses 16 through 18. Verse 16 says it like this, Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. So, the proclamation of the Lord is sovereign. And there are two answers to the question about what right does Yahweh have in destroying the wicked in this world? The first answer to this is that Yahweh is the eternal God. That's what verse 16 says, where it says, Yahweh is king forever and ever. David's very strong assertion of Yahweh's kingship being forever and ever is a very clear confession of his eternality. His kingship is eternal and universal. Psalm 29.10, Yahweh set enthroned over the flood. Indeed, Yahweh sits as king forever. Back in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 20, he alone has control of life and death. God warned the Israelites before entering the promised land like the nation's that Yahweh makes to perish before you so shall you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of Yahweh your God turning all the way to the new testament in John chapter 8 and verse 58 Yahweh is the person of Jesus Christ before his incarnation and it says Jesus said to them truly I say to you before Abraham was I am Paul says in Colossians 1:17 And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John says in the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 8, where he talks about God, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then later on in verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand upon me, saying, Do not fear, I am the first and the last. The author of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 8. And this is interesting because this particular verse is inscribed on my father's tombstone. It's one of those unforgettable verses. Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Yahweh, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, has every right to bring judgment upon the oppressor because he is the eternal God. The second reason that David gives us is that not only that, but Yahweh alone has the authority and power over all nations. He has the authority and power over all nations. The text says, nations have perished from his land. And the verb has perished is translated Translates the Hebrew perfect tense, which is probably a reference to the many nations that Yahweh had already and perfectly dispatched from the earth, but it also can be taken as a prophetic perfect, speaking about what will happen. In fact, the Septuagint translates it like this, as a future. This is a prayer for divine intervention and vindication, is the sense of that verse. We do know that an eschatological judgment has yet to come upon uh, this entire universe. Go back to chapter 2 of Psalms just for a moment. Verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us and he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In other words, what God does stands forever, and what he takes away, he takes away forever. There's the idea. Then you can see this in verses 17 and 18. In verse 17 now, David expresses his confidence that Yahweh has heard his plea to break the arm of the wicked, remove all injustice and oppression, and rescue the hapless. And again, the Hebrew word here is in perfect tense, you have heard, meaning Yahweh has listened and has agreed and has acted, you have heard. The next two verbs now in this verse, in verse 17, are imperfects, suggesting that Yahweh will progressively do two things in the future. First, he will strengthen their hearts, meaning that he will grant them the deep confidence and boldness to take their stand against injustice and oppression. What brings that about? His loving kindness. Loving kindness is what strengthens their heart in terms of boldness and fearlessness. And the second, he will cause your ear to give heed, meaning Yahweh will always in the future, be attentive to the sufferings of his people. So that kind of special knowledge causes a humble man or woman to feel secure during the worst days that life has to offer. And then verse 18, again, the picture is one of those who are most vulnerable, powerless, helpless, oppressed. Yahweh will give justice, literally judge correctly, the orphan and the oppressed, broken people. In this case, the words give justice means to vindicate the vulnerable. One author said, if God destroys the wicked, the innocent victims will not only be rescued, but vindicated in their faith in the Lord. That's right. The final effect of Yahweh's judgment upon the wicked is that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Now, here's a verse to memorize if you're being oppressed, the fear of man destroys lives, destroys families, destroys faith, it destroys joy in living. We certainly saw that happen during the COVID 19 pandemic. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28 do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Proverbs 29 25, you know this, trembling. Before man brings a snare, but he who trusts in Yahweh will be be set securely on high. Now, with all of that said, what are things that we can learn from these two? Let me end with 12 things real quickly. 12 things real quickly. I know you're running out of room. Just get another piece of paper or get out your phone, take a picture, whatever you want to do, whatever's fast for you. All right, what are 12 lessons we can learn when oppressed? There are so many things that we can learn from Psalm 9 and 10, but let me highlight at least 12 of them. Number one is this. I must remember that times of oppression are opportunities for worship. I've got to remember that. I have to recall that to my mind on a regular basis. When somebody oppresses me and brings affliction on my life, this is an opportunity for me to turn around and worship. Secondly, I must be remind myself that the Lord is an enemy of ungodly oppressors. In other words, my enemy is my Lord's enemy. My enemy is my Lord's enemy, and He will bring judgment, which brings us actually to the third thing. There in chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, I must recall the truth that the Lord will eventually destroy all the wicked, we know that is his promise, and he will follow through with that. He will destroy those who are cruel and abusive and want to bring hardship and affliction, people who are super controlling and vindictive in everything that they do. He will bring them ultimately to justice. Number four, not only that, but I must be encouraged to know that the Lord is open to my cries for ref- rescue. It's not wrong to cry out. In fact, that's what God wants you to do. This is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. You're not showing weakness in your faith because you're crying out to him. You're sowing strength in your faith because you acknowledge that he is the only one who can ultimately really help you. Fifth, I must rejoice in the Lord's compassion towards me by administering telianic justice to my oppressors. In other words, he will cause what they plan in terms of evil to come upon you to actually be reversed and come back upon their own head. That's what he will cause to do. And I will rejoice in that. He's having compassion towards me when he does that. Number six, I must never forget that only fear and death is the future of the oppressor. Only fear and death is the future of the oppressor. I must not forget that. We have a great future, a great future, not in this life primarily, but in the life to come in heaven. No one can rob that of us. The oppressor does not have that. He has no future. There's only fear and death that's going to be there. Number seven, not only that, but I must constantly remind myself that my deliverance is based upon the Lord's timing not mine. The Lord's timing. That's going to be the hard part. This is where we become discouraged. I want my deliverance now. Lord, get rid of this problem now. And it's not His purpose. He has other things going on. He knows everything. He knows us exhaustively. He knows what He needs to take us through in order to develop Christ like character in us. And sometimes that is going to be affliction. Number eight, I must realize that for a time, the malicious ways of the oppressor may seem to prosper and grow stronger. That will be part of the experience and the feelings that we have during our lifetime. We'll experience this. And in addition to that, I must be wise while waiting on the Lord to the deceptiveness and delusional thoughts of my oppressor, all right? in other words, they plan and think evil towards me, why do I act like I'm surprised when that occurs? Why do I act like this is right? They're planning this all along, and they're planning evil towards me. So, I shouldn't be surprised when these things happen. God says this is what's going to occur. Their thoughts are full of evil in that sense. Number 10, not only that, But I must be ready to urgently plead for the Lord's intervention and vengeance upon my oppressor. That's the whole change of tone in chapter 10, right? Beginning in verse 12, all the way through 15, I've got to be ready to urgently plead for the Lord's intervention and vengeance upon my oppressor. And that's only going to happen if you are not an atheist or a deist in your thinking. That's only going to happen if you have full confidence and faith and belief in the Lord. Number 11, I must be confident that the Lord will vindicate me when He judges my oppressors. I must be confident that the Lord will vindicate me when He judges In other words, what I have stood for in terms of righteousness will be vindicated, and ultimately, um, my rescue will vindicate genuine justice. And He's the only one, because we're the ones who are helpless. And number 12, last of all, I must no longer fear man, only the Lord. I must no longer fear man, only the Lord. I cannot fear men or anything that man is going to do to me. I must fear only the Lord. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, this has been a rich time of study through Psalm 9 and 10, I pray, dear Father, that you'll continue to use this, especially as we face opposition and resistance in this world, when we seek to take a stand for righteousness' sake and for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world in which we live. May we have the faith and trust in you that David expresses, especially at the end of chapter 10. And then when he prays that imprecatory prayer against his enemies, he's only praying that you do what you have said you will do to the enemies of righteousness and to those who are oppressed, that you bring upon them a judgment that will vindicate righteousness and vindicate our lives in order to bring greater honor and glory to you. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.